Welcome to GNCC Church. I'm Chuck Weedmaster with Team Faith. Let's get the sound system dialed in here. Man, the weather, it just, it just feel like it's the weather has been fighting us this whole season. We started out cold, then it got really hot in Florida. And, you know, honestly, it's my fault because God knows I'm a wimp and he's trying to toughen me up a little bit. So sorry about that. Hey, let's go to the Lord and have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for today. The sun's shining on us. What a perfect time for this, Lord. We love you. It's a privilege to, to gather here in your name. Slow us down. Give us an attention to hear what you have to say today. Speak to us and use me to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. So tomorrow is going to be Palm Sunday, which means that we're a week away from Easter, right? And everybody here, we understand what Easter is. Uh, it's it's we, we celebrate Jesus rising from the dead. But have you watched any of those YouTube videos of reporters? Well, anybody anybody can be a reporter and go out on the street. It used to be uh, Jay Leno had a segment called Jaywalking. And I remember one segment on Jaywalking where the, the, the interviewer would go out on the street and he was asking people, do you know what year the War of 1812 was? And nobody knew. 1943? I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> so that kind of stuff. A couple of years ago, I saw one of these types of reporters going out and asking people about Easter. What is Easter? And it was cringeworthy. I mean, it, it actually, it broke my heart. It wasn't even funny. It was just cringeworthy that uh, a bunny, chocolate eggs, time with family. And that's really what most people's answer were was that, well, it is time with family. You know, we get together, we have a big dinner. But nobody really knew why. What a sad, what a sad state for our country to be in. Not worried about that here tonight. I know that we know what Easter is all about, the real reason for it. Tomorrow being Palm Sunday, I want to focus in on Palm Sunday a little bit. Specifically, I want to focus in on Jesus cursing the fig tree. So if you're familiar with the, the story of Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, uh, you're, you've heard this story before. We're going to dig into that a little bit. But to get there, like we always do, we have to set the context. And so here's where we come. It's the last week of Jesus' life. It's Passover week. Jesus seems to be the only person that knows it's the last week of his life. Nobody will believe him, pay attention when he talks about these things. But for three years, he's been doing ministry in the nation of Israel. He's been, he's been in the region of Galilee. He's been in Judea. He's been in Jerusalem. He's been in Samaria. He's been all over the place. And he's been, he's been preaching and teaching with authority so that people are just astounded. Like, where does this guy get his authority from? He speaks with such purpose. But not only that, he's doing miracles. The blind are able to see, the lame are able to walk, the deaf are able to hear. There's a story about a time that 5,000 people got a free fish sandwich because Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And so his fame is spreading. And everywhere that he goes, crowds of people gather in. And it seems that people always have their own agenda for Jesus. They always want to fit him into their little box. And so as he's coming into this final week of his life, that box is very clearly defined by the people. They have their purpose for Jesus. Specifically, they want him to be king. The thing about Jesus is he never fits anybody's political agenda. And that's true today, just as it was true back then. I mean, you're not going to fit Jesus. Whatever your box is, if it's your political agenda that you need to love your neighbor by wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, whatever your agenda, Jesus doesn't fit in that box. Matter of fact, he just kind of ignores it. He lives outside, outside of the box for real. So as he's coming in, this is the stage. His fame has been spreading. And in John chapter 11, there's an event that really sets things off. 
is the raising of Lazarus. So it's just a couple of months before this event that we're talking about on Palm Sunday. Jesus comes, uh, he gets word. Messengers come to him and say, Jesus, come quickly. The one whom you love is deathly ill and he's about to die. Lazarus, he is sick, he's going to die if you don't come and help him. Jesus says, okay, I'll come when I get good and ready to. And he waits a couple of days. And finally, when he does get to Lazarus, Lazarus has been dead for like four days. And Jesus, not only is Lazarus dead, he's good and dead. Jesus says, open the tomb. And the people reply, he's so good and dead that he's ripe. If we open the tomb, it's going to stink. And Jesus says, open the tomb. They open the tomb and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out bound up like a mummy. And he's like, I'm tired, I'm let him loose. And Lazarus is alive. And the fame of Jesus, boom, it spreads all over the place. Like faster than a YouTube sensation. <laughs> the fame of Jesus just spreads all over. Did you know that the religious leaders at that point decided that they needed to put Lazarus to death a second time? It's true. John chapter 12, verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, what might they be believing about Jesus? Well, specifically, that he was the Messiah. That everything that was prophesied about the coming Messiah was coming true in Jesus. And the Jews, they're believing because of Lazarus. And so they say, well, we need it. The first time didn't work. We got to do it again. The fame of Jesus spreads. And so here we are. Mark chapter 10. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. Mark chapter 11 is actually the triumphal entry. So a chapter before Mark chapter 10, Jesus is headed to towards Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And I know that they're headed towards Jerusalem because verse 32 says they were on the road going to Jerusalem. And verse 46, and they came to Jericho. Have you heard the name Jericho? I wish I needed I need a map here, okay? So if you have if you have the nation of Israel right here. The nation of Israel to the east, which to you that would be your right. So to the east You've got Jerusalem right here, and you've got Jericho right here, and right next to Jericho is the Jordan River, and that's the boundary of Israel. Now, you're familiar with this story because Joshua, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. You remember all that. Back in, in Joshua chapter 3, they had to cross, the Israelites had to cross the Jordan River to enter into the promised land. This is the, the promise that God made with Abraham that he's going to do a thing and you, you're going to be a father of a great nation with lots of people, lots of land. They're coming into their land. They have to cross the river, the Jordan River, and the first place that they come to is Jericho. And yes, they, that was the first battle that they had to have was in Jericho. The thing about Jericho is it's right on the edge there. It's the first town that you come to when you cross the Jordan River. So it says here that Jesus is... They came to Jericho. So they're coming from someplace on their way to Jerusalem. They came to, Jer to Jericho. That must mean that they were beyond the Jordan River. And that's actually not a speculation because Mark started out in chapter 10 saying that they went, he went into the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. So crowds beyond the Jordan River. By the end of the chapter, he's making his way back over the Jordan River to Jericho. He's got crowds again, and he's on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. Luke chapter 19, we'll pick up the story from, from Luke. Going up to Jerusalem, 
And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, so these are actual places. Again, to the east, Jerusalem is here, and you got Bethany right here, and you got the Mount of Olives right there, just overlooking Jerusalem. So he comes to these places. Bethany is the, the place where he raised Lazarus from the dead just a short time ago. He gets to the Mount of Olives and he sends two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. So did Jesus just say, go steal a donkey? It sounds that way, but Jesus says, no, no, no. If anybody asks you what you're doing, tell them the Lord has need of it. That's exactly what they did. Somebody said, what are you guys doing? The Lord has need of it. Oh, okay, by all means, have the, have the donkey. So they bring it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, disciples simply means a follower, so this whole multitude of people that had been following him from all the way over here, this huge crowd of people, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm chapter 118, verse 26. And they say, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, where did Jesus just come from? I spent a lot of time building this up about the Jordan River. He was beyond the Jordan River and he came to Jericho and Bethany and the Mount of Olives. Okay, so he's beyond the Jordan River. Joshua chapter 3 is when the people cross over the Jordan River. Joshua chapter 4, God tells Joshua, he says, choose, choose 12 men. Choose one man from each tribe. Send that man to the Jordan River that had dried up. God had dried up the Jordan River. The people crossed by on dry ground. He says, choose one man from each tribe to go into the riverbed, pick up a stone, bring it out, and build a memorial. Twelve stone memorial right here. Why? Because when your children ask you what this memorial of twelve stones is for, you will tell them about what God has done here on this day. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Now those 12 stones are not there today. Matter of fact, in Jesus' time, the 12 stones probably weren't there either. But the story was, Jesus was a Jew, teaching and ministering to Jews. The people knew this story so well. And Jesus had just come through, just come through where God had done the second part of the Abrahamic covenant. The first part was, you're going to be a father of a great nation with lots of people, lots of land, and they come through. And now Jesus, the Messiah, the fulfillment, and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. The fulfillment of that. He's coming down the Mount of Olives. And the people are chanting Psalm 118. And the Pharisees say, why are you letting this happen? And Jesus says, I tell you, if they were silent, even the stones would cry out. That's that pile, the memorial that told you that the second part of the Abrahamic covenant had come true. I am the embodiment of that covenant. And so now, with our 2020 or 2022 vision, we can see exactly what's happening here and why Jesus would make the reference to the stones crying out. 
the wind is blowing. Now, <laughs> I know I said I was going to talk about a fig tree, right? And we're getting there. I promise we're getting there. And you think I'm on some sort of rabbit trail, but everything we're talking about is leading up to this moment with the fig tree. So we'll just continue on here. Luke chapter 19. When he drew near this city, he wept over it, saying, Would you, that even you, had you known on this day the things that make for peace, for the days will come on you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to the ground. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now when Jesus talks about stones this time, he's talking about the stones on the wall of Jerusalem there. He's up on the Mount of Olives. And Luke is the only one that records this story of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. But Jesus, before he makes that processional down, he, he looks out and he sees the city and he weeps. And yes, it's true that he can see 40 years into the future. He sees the coming destruction because Jerusalem was leveled to the ground, not one stone upon another, in 70 AD. But this is about 40 years prior to that event and Jesus is weeping over it. Weeping that it's going to be destroyed and it's destroyed because of God's judgment has come upon that city. And he says, would that you had known the day of your visitation but it just passed you right by. And then the triumphal entry down into the city. Matthew chapter 21. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The prophet from Nazareth. Little side note. As Jesus is coming in, the Mount Olives is to the east of Jerusalem. So he's coming down. And that gate that's in the eastern wall, you know what that's called? It's the eastern gate. Yeah, you guys would make it on. You guys would make it on, on jaywalking with Jay Leno, okay? So the eastern gate is in the eastern wall. That's the gate that he enters. That is also called the sheep gate because that's where the sheep enter. Matter of fact, the sheep, according to Jewish historians, Josephus specifically, explained that the the sacrificial lambs that are used for Passover were born and raised in a little town just south of Jerusalem. A little tiny town called Bethlehem. And the sheep were raised there to be specifically used for Passover. And on the week of Passover, they would be herded north just a little ways to Jerusalem. And instead of coming in the south gate, they would go to the side. They would come in the eastern gate, the sheep gate. The sheep were being herded in on the very day that Jesus was coming in through the sheep gate. From Bethlehem. Interesting, I'm sure it doesn't mean anything at all, but does anybody know where Jesus was born? Bethlehem! It means everything, doesn't it? Because we have that 2022 vision. Like this, this is amazing. That Jesus, the sacrifice, the, the Lamb, behold John the Baptist, behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Born in Bethlehem. But what do the what do the crowds say? What's all this commotion all about? The crowd say, Oh, this is a prophet. Not this is the Messiah that all the prophecies have been talking about. They say, oh, this is this is the prophet. And he's from where? Nazareth. The, the very day that the sheep were coming in the sheep gate, Jesus, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, is coming in through the sheep gate. And they say, oh, he's, he's from Nazareth. The prophet from Nazareth. And it's true, Jesus was raised in Nazareth. But this definitely gives some insight that although the people are actively participating in prophecies coming true, they have no awareness of it. They have no recognition of it. Mark chapter 11, verse 11. 
he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything, so in other words, of the triumphal entry, he comes into Jerusalem, goes to the, directly to the temple, and he looks around. He takes it in. He goes to the start line, he checks it out the day before the race, right? He's just checking everything, he just checks everything out. The wind is so helpful today. After looking around, it was already late. Fun stuff, it's already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the twelve, the twelve disciples. Bethany, the place where he raised Lazarus from the dead. We speculate, don't know for sure, but we speculate that he's probably uh, staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus there in, Beth in Bethany. This kind of puts a hole in the whole prosperity gospel theory that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and, and all that because Jesus, on the most important week of his life, couldn't afford a hotel in Jerusalem. He's staying with friends. John chapter uh, 11 says that that Bethany is 15 stadia from Jerusalem. 15 stadia translates to about one and three quarter mile away. So walking one and three quarter mile, it's a little bit of a trip there to get back and forth. On the following day, this would be of course Monday, they, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. There, I got to it. Jesus cursed the fig tree. We finally got there. Now it's true. Jesus is hungry. The season fig tree and leaf. Mark says it's not the season for figs. The season for figs is late summer, early fall. Okay, so that'd be August, September-ish. This is April-ish that we're talking about. Matter of fact, it was in April. We got backwards on our calendars there. It was exactly this time of year. And Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree and leaf. It's true that a fig tree can produce what's called breba, which is a small fig that develops during the spring, and it, it grows on the previous year's uh, shoot. But the growth is very small, and the real growth, the real figs, come late in the season. So there's a chance that with this tree and leaf, it could have had some little tiny fruit there. But Mark says it's not the season for figs. So... Would Jesus have a realistic expectation of having figs there? Why would Jesus be so mean to this poor little fig tree? <laughs> if you've heard this message preached before, if you've heard a pastor talk about, about uh, Jesus cursing the fig tree, you've probably heard it said that the fig tree is representative of the nation of Israel. And there's definitely some truth in that. Because Jeremiah chapter 24 God compares the nation of Israel to a fig tree. There's good figs and bad figs. Uh, Hosea chapter 9 verse 10 compares Israel to a fig tree. There are a couple mentions, I think, in 1 Kings and Micah of peace and prosperous, peace and prosperity where a man can sit under in the shade of his own fig tree. So the fig tree is definitely referenced in the Old Testament and true, it is compared to the nation of Israel. But Mark doesn't give us any commentary. He just tells us what happens. And so let's keep reading with Mark and see what we see what comes up next. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons or more accurately translated and sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? 
I don't think he was exactly teaching the people this. I think he was declaring this. My house will be a house of prayer. It's to be a house of prayer for all the nations. You made it a den of robbers. Now, what, what's going on here? This is Herod's temple. This is the second temple that had been built. The first one was Solomon's temple. Beautiful in all of its glorious splendor. Uh, it was rebuilt. It was destroyed and rebuilt by Nehemiah. By the time uh, of the first century here, Herod had added on and had built these beautiful, beautiful courtyards. The temple was really something to behold. You could see it from a distance. It was, it was glorious. There were four courtyards surrounding the temple. Three of those courtyards were specifically for Jewish people. There was the courtyard of women, which only a Jewish woman could go into that courtyard, and that's as far as they could go into the temple. This would be in Luke chapter 21, which is the very week that we're talking about here. This is when Jesus and his disciples see the woman offer her two mites. That would have been in the, in the courtyard of women. Then there's the courtyard of Israel, which is for men, Jewish men only. Then there's the courtyard of the priest, which is self-explanatory. And finally, there's the courtyard of Gentiles, which is what I am. I'm not a Jew. And most of you probably are not a Jew either. So you're a Gentile. This was our courtyard. And this is hugely significant because we've already talked about it a little bit tonight, the Abrahamic covenant. It all goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In the very beginning, right after that first sin, God has a plan to deal with that sin. He tells Satan, Satan, you're going to bruise the offspring of the woman. You're going to bruise his, his heel. He's going to bruise your head. Or more accurately, he's going to crush your head. And then God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to do this through you. You are going to be a father of a nation that through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And now Jesus comes to the courtyard of the nations, the Gentiles, and what's happening in there. It's a bazaar, a flea market. It's a marketplace. There are money changers. There are people buying and selling. There's no worship going on there. God's on their lips, but not on their hearts. The money changers. During this time, the Romans were in charge, so the, the currency was the Roman denarius. Now back in the Old Testament law, if you come to the temple and want to offer a, an offering, it was, uh, it was spelled out that you would use a shekel. And so the Pharisees said, well, you can't use a denarius. You have to trade your denarius for a shekel. Now who gets rich on, on money exchanges? Visa and MasterCard, right? 3% on every transaction. It's nothing. But the bank makes the money. And who's the bank here? It's the religious leaders. The animal inspectors are in the courtyard of the Gentiles. Oh, I see you brought your own sheep for the sacrifice. Let me look at that. Ooh, yeah, that one's not going to cut it. You need this one from Bethlehem. This one's a sacrificial lamb from Bethlehem. I'll tell you what. I'll take your Kia in on trade and give you this much money. And you give me $1,000 with it. You can have your own brand new Bethlehem lamb. The doves. What's up with the doves? Smidges specifically. In the Old Testament, if you cannot afford a sheep, a lamb to sacrifice, you are allowed to substitute a dove. Matter of fact, Luke chapter two, when uh, when Jesus was was born, and he's uh, he's taken to the temple to be consecrated at his birth, his his uh, Mary and Joseph they offer two turtle doves. Yet another hole in the prosperity gospel theory comes from poor, poor human beginnings. And so taking advantage of the poor here. And then Jesus chases out not just the sellers, but the buyers as well. 
Now I've always read this and I thought, man, I thought the buyers were victims in all of this, that they're being the ones taking advantage of. But Jesus drives everybody out. And he explains it very clearly. My house is to be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. And it's not just a house of prayer. A house of prayer for who? For all nations. And now, the very fulfillment of the promise, he arrives. And what does he see? He sees materialism and greed and self-interest. And he drives them all out. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you has cursed, that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them. This will be good because Jesus will explain it all, right? This, he said, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. That cleared it up, right? Yeah, not really. <laughs> More confused than you were before? To summarize, Peter says, Jesus, look, that tree that you cursed, it's withered and died. Jesus, have faith when you pray. Believe. Okay? So how does, how does all of that tie in? Well, let me tell you. Mark did a beautiful job with the context of this. We have a problem. We don't see the forest for the trees. We focus on the tree. We see the one tree. We see these different events on their own. But Mark, he had them all brought together all the way from chapter 10 all the way through chapter 13 is all one continuous contextual story that adds context to the entire thing here. What's happening here is that Yes, it's true in the Old Testament, the fig tree represented Israel, but we didn't even need the Old Testament to explain this story to us. The fig tree is definitely representative of Israel because Jesus uses that fig tree as a visual aid. It is a 3D example of who Jerusalem is, of who the people are, and what they're doing at that time. Remember, he's up on the hill. He says, your day of visitation is here. You don't even see it. He comes down, he examines the temple, he comes back, and then he's passing this victory. He uses that as an example to his disciples, purposely that they might see him curse the victory. Because what he's done here is he has declared judgment against the tree, judgment against the temple. You see, when he goes into the temple and he clears the temple, it's the same thing. The story of the temple and the story of this victory, they're the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. It's during this week that the that the disciples say, hey, look at that temple. Isn't it magnificent? And Jesus declares judgment against the temple. He says there's not going to be one stone left upon the other. It's all going to be torn down. I'll walk you through it real quick here just to make sure that we get this in context. Jesus is hungry. He comes to the fig tree. He's hungry. He comes to the temple. He's hungry. He wants to see fruit in both of these situations. He wants to see fruit. But what happens? The Old Testament has spelled it out that this is your day of visitation. You should have known what's about to happen here. They should have been ready. Here's, here's a guy who was born in Bethlehem, just like Micah said. Uh, out of Egypt I call my son, just like Hosea said. The light shines in Galilee, like Isaiah said. The crowd even said, this is Jesus from Nazareth. Where's Nazareth? It's in Galilee. The crowd, they have him right there on the tip of their tongue and they don't even get it. 
the lame walk, the blind see, just like Isaiah said. Zechariah said, your king is humble, riding on a colt, even the foal of a donkey. It happens in real time in front of their eyes, and they don't even get it. Instead, they have their selfish interest, and they're chasing materialism. So Jesus is hungry, longing for fruit, longing for fruit, sees nothing. He approaches the tree, he approaches the temple, he looks around, there's no fruit. Isaiah chapter 5 is a story about a vineyard, and the vineyard is a representation of Israel in Isaiah chapter 5. A, a, a landowner plants this beautiful vineyard, makes it the very best that it could possibly be, has every chance for success, and it grows no fruit. At the end of it, the landowner tears the entire vineyard down, and it's written in Isaiah chapter 5, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Which is exactly what Jesus does here. He looked for the fruit, and there was nothing. And so he pronounced judgment. Chapter 12, in Mark chapter 12, is the parable of the tenants, where a landowner sends, uh, sends his own servants to check on his property, and the, the tenants of the property kill the landowner's servants. So he sends his own son, and they kill the man's own son. Chapter 13, Jesus pronounces judgment against the temple. You see, this is all the fig tree is just a representation of Jesus judging in Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem, they rejected Jesus. The thing is, is that Jesus judged them. A couple years ago, it was very popular in our culture to say, Who are you to judge me? Only God can judge me. Today, the attitude of people around us is, Who is God to judge me? I can love who I want to love. I can do what I want to do. Who is God to judge me? The thing is, by the measure that you judge, or you're going to be judged, is exactly what Jesus did here with the fig tree and with the temple. It's the day of their visitation. They had all the information. They should have been producing fruit. They should have recognized that the Messiah was here, that their day of visitation had arrived. They were too wrapped up in themselves to even see it. Friends, the same thing's happening here today. This Palm Sunday of 2022, the same thing's happening. The day of your visitation is here. Do you recognize the Messiah? Because that's going to be, that's going to be the ultimate and eternal measure of your destiny. The final note, Jesus never explained the fig tree to his disciples. You notice that? Peter says, hey, look, that fig tree that you cursed, it's withered. And Jesus goes into, well, if you believe, you'll receive it. <laughs> he never explained the fig tree instead he told them to have faith and believe in other words as we see now that that fig tree was a visual representation it was it was a uh, it was a visual aid we see that now and it makes perfect sense that israel is rejected but you are not believe have faith and believe and when you pray you're going to receive it forgive each other so that God will forgive you and mountains are going to move. The world is going to change for you. Israel's rejected, but you are not. And those disciples on that day, they became the world changers. Mountains moved for them. The whole, the, the trajectory of history changed for them. The trajectory of my life changed when I made Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. Mountains have moved in my life. I can tell you that. Alcohol has a terrible grip on people. Had a terrible grip on me. The mountains move when Jesus is your Lord. 
if you've not made Jesus the Lord of your life, it's the simplest thing. You'll, it's the simplest and the hardest thing that you'll ever do. I want to be clear on that. The simplest thing is just the word, God, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. That's the simple thing to do to humble. The hard thing is you give up on yourself. You bow the knee of your heart. God, I can't do it my own way. I give up on my way of doing it and I surrender my way to Jesus. That's the parable of victory, my friend. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for uh, just prophecy coming true in Jesus' time, in our times, and proves that you are who you say that you are. Lord, I pray for those that have not made Jesus the Lord of their life. I pray that today will be a day of a great awakening for them, that they'll surrender their heart to you and make Jesus their Lord. Lord, for those of us that have made Jesus the Lord, I pray that our lights will shine bright and that you'll use us to bring others to Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Happy Easter. And I'll see you uh, in a few weeks up in Indiana.